0: Hey, thanks for listening to the Grace Auburn Church podcast. This week lead pastor Matt Dean works through chapter 16 of Luke in our series, So that you may know. We're in a series called So that you may know. We were in we're in Luke 16, so we've been at this now for a couple of months and we're looking at the Gospel of Luke specifically the life and ministry of Jesus. And as Luke writes these things in the opening chapter, he says, I'm writing these things carefully. He's curated a careful account of the life and ministry of Jesus so that you may know with certainty the things that you have been taught. And as we walk through this book together, we literally have read every word so far and we're not gonna stop, we're gonna keep on going through. Last week um, is very important to remember as we jump into this week, that the father goes after the wayward son And he goes after those who are self-indulgent and those that are self-righteous. He is the good shepherd that joyfully puts the lost sheep, leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And he is the same way with a coin that lies helplessly on the floor. And he's the one that finds it. And so as we think about this this morning, I want to say on the front end that chapter 16 is difficult. Chapter 16 is not the most comforting passage uh, and I have wrestled with this passage significantly because uh, it's it's not the most uh, easily packaged sermon in North American Christianity, and yet I'm so thankful that he is not like us, that God who has redeemed us has a perspective that's not like our felt perspectives in many times. So I want to say on the front end of this that I have uh, pulled upon many many resources this week as I have wrestled in that, and so. Uh, ranging from John Piper and Alistair Begg and Soren Kierkegaard and um, Kevin DeYoung and N.T. Wright and Michael Wilcock. And so, in addition to all that, some of these thoughts are my own. A lot of these thoughts are not my own. I'm certainly not here to plagiarize uh, anything. And most importantly, these are the words of Jesus. But wise men and women have wrestled with this passage together. And my heart is to honor those who've wrestled with this, but most highly honor the words of Jesus. He's the one that we look to today. I also want to say on the front end of this that uh, repentance is always an option for you. And if what lands in this passage today is offensive or convicting, repentance is your best and first option today. And if money is an idol, if you're in the middle of idolatry, if you're in the middle of adultery, and if your treasure is anything other than Christ today, repentance is your option, your best course of action today. And as we work through this together, I want you to know uh, that his heart for you is just like it is in Luke 15. He will gladly go after the one who is lost when the 99 are found. And so even though Jesus begins to talk about things that are challenging real idols in this day and in our day, I want you to know that Luke 15 comes right before this. And it's almost like the warmth of an embrace of being reminded of God's unconditional love and his profound mercy His unrivaled affection for those who come home. But then there's also this reminder that you cannot serve both God and money. And that in this life, in the here and now, you must respond to Jesus. There's not a plan B afterwards. He's the plan A for today and for forever. And you choose today whom you will serve and whom you will follow. So on the front end of that, just know repentance is always an option for you in this lifetime. And by grace through faith, you can draw near to him. I'm going to read Luke 16 at face value, and then we're going to work back through it together. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what should I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he said. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 400. Then he asked the second, well, how much do you owe? 1,000 bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will you trust with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And the Pharisees who are listening in are like, interesting, interesting. They loved money, they heard this, and they started sneering at Jesus. And Jesus now says to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. Same audience, same message. Now Jesus says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of the pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery, takes a deep breath, and then says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, which, by the way, is not the same Lazarus that was raised from the dead in John, just so you know that. At, a gate, at this gate was laid, named a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So I'm studying for this and I I keep looking at this and I'm like, okay, this is really difficult to understand. It's difficult at face value to initially apply. And I love Jesus and I love the word of Jesus. So there's something for us here. And and I I was really, really struggling just from a pastoral perspective of like, how, how do Jesus can preach this? But I, I don't I'm struggling to understand this. And I was wrestling and wrestling and I'm going through commentary after commentary after commentary of trustworthy, wise people. I'm I'm like, okay, 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 okay. And then then I stumble upon this one um, that was chaired by John Stott, a, a great pastor and theologian. And in the opening line of this particular series, he says, this is one of the most difficult passages to understand or preach in all of Luke's gospel. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because this is very, very, very difficult to understand. And yet we're working through this whole thing. Our eyes are fixed on Easter and the resurrection of the hope that we have in Jesus. So just to help us remember a few things together, first, Luke was almost certainly writing to a rich audience. Both of his books are addressed to people in high uh, standing, high social standing, titled Most Excellent. And so as Luke is writing this, he's writing it to an audience that understands wealth and likely has wealth. The second thing is this. Luke himself was likely relatively uh, wealthy. He, He was likely to have resources because of his practice as a physician. And, and, and it says in Colossians that this occasional traveler with Paul was this beloved physician, Luke. And so th- being a physician uh, is not uh, without its financial uh, reward in addition to all of the burden. So first of all, Luke's writing this with the wealthy in mind, and he is writing this with his own wealth in mind. Kevin DeYoung said this, Luke was not a poor man writing to poor people that together they might denounce the rich. It was much closer to the truth to say Luke was a rich man writing to another rich man and people like him in order to show how the rich could truly follow Jesus, which is really helpful for us to hear. Because throughout that, um, he observes a couple of patterns. And I, and I want to just share this with you as we, as we think about the context of this. This is his helpful survey of, of this theme that Luke is writing as the rich to the rich. Uh, he said, He goes on, he says, We read in Mary's Magnificat about the great reversal that is coming where the poor will be exalted and the rich will be cast down. From the outset of the gospel, we see that the humble, the hungry, and poor are in a position of future blessing while the proud, exalted, and rich are in danger. And John, In chapter 3, Luke writes that John the Baptist explains that repentance is directly tied to what you do with your money. Importantly, however, the text never suggests that being a tax collector or a soldier makes one complicit in the oppressive Roman regime. There was a right way to make money, and there was a right way to work for the Roman Empire. We see in chapter 4 of Luke, Jesus preaching in his hometown of Nazareth, and he reads Isaiah 61 and identifies himself as a spirit-anointed prophet to preach good news to the poor. And what follows, Jesus gives two examples of the poor who received the good news. He mentions in Luke 4, the widow of Zarephath, who is materially poor. And then he mentions in 427, Naaman, the Syrian general, who is materially rich. And this is our first example of a rich man, as he says, who gets it. In chapter five, we see Jesus calling a tax collector named Levi to follow him. And when Levi follows Jesus, he leaves everything behind and later throws a great party in his house with all sorts of tax collectors. This is another example of a rich man doing the right thing. In chapter eight of Luke, we see a number of rich women serving as patrons and supporters for Jesus' ministry and for his disciples. Again, another example of more rich people using their money well. And then in chapter 10 of Luke, we see the good Samaritan who helps the needy, but we also see negative examples of the societal elite ignoring people who have urgent needs in front of them. In chapter 12, we meet the rich fool who lives for himself and trusts in his wealth to save him. And if you are a rich man, depending on your riches, you are not doing it right. We see in chapter 14 that this kingdom is compared to a wedding feast and then to a great banquet. Kevin DeYoung says, austerity and asceticism, while necessary at times, are not pictures of the good life that God has waiting for his people. And then last week in Luke 15, we see the prodigal son waste his inheritance on wild living only to come to his senses when he is poor and destitute. Again, Luke and Jesus shows us the danger of wealth and the blessing that can come from being poor. But we also see another example of a wide-hearted rich man, the prodigal's father who throws caution to the wind and spreads a feast for his long-lost son. And now in chapter 16, we have an example of a rich man using his wealth wisely and an example of a rich man using his wealth poorly. First, we have a parable of the dishonest manager, which again, as we just read, is quite troubling to go, what what do we do with this? He says, we sometimes get hung up on the fact that Jesus is using a bad man to be a good example, but the point is clear enough. Be shrewd with your money and faithful with your earthly wealth so that you strategically can do heavenly good. And in the other part of 16, we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. This is a negative example to contrast with the positive example earlier in the chapter. The rich man lived in self-satisfied luxury and ignored the needs right in front of him. He faces unending torment in the flames of judgment. Well, okay, that helps a little because we see that this is not an isolated thing. And, and here's the funny, I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a limited, I'm limited. I'm limited in my capacity in every way. I've been preaching through this. I mean, I, the bulk of this, I've been preaching through. And when I read that article, I was like, huh, Well, that sure is helpful. So uh, there's a lesson in how to study the Bible today. And that is this. If you come across a difficult passage in scripture, let the Bible teach the Bible. And if you come across something that's like, I don't understand this. This does not seem like the full picture. It's likely not. We need the full counsel of God's word, the full counsel of that. We really need to understand the gospel and our standing by grace through faith as we begin to read and understand what it looks like to obey Jesus. We've got to understand the big picture. I just wanna encourage you this morning, whether it's this or something else, if in your pursuit of knowing Jesus through his word, you come across something and you're like, I do not understand this. You are not the first Christian to go, I do not understand this. And I want you to take heart today If you don't understand it, keep seeking, keep trying, keep going. All the way up to this morning at 7.13, I was wrestling with this passage. So I want you to know you're in good company. This is what it means to know and love Jesus as we wrestle with the truth of this. Michael Wilcock, he's a theologian in England. He says, Jesus is confronting the hearers with the challenge to act upon what they have been hearing. And the main challenge in Luke 16 is to respond here and now. To the message of Jesus. John Piper, he says, the summary of these two parables is this, that money is a test of our faithfulness to God. If we don't use it in a way that shows God is more precious than things, then verse 11 says, there is no reason to think we will ever be entrusted with the true riches of heaven. If you've missed our teaching on joyful generosity, I encourage you to go back online and look at it because it is a comprehensive door-to-door, cover-to-cover look at what it looks like to generously respond to the gospel with your life and with your money. Giving is for your good and the glory of God. And in between these two parables, we see in Luke 16 through 18, this, this one-off um, about the law and about divorce and adultery. And I think it would just be really helpful not to skip over that, but in fact, to look at that and go, why, why in the middle of these two parables about wealth, and about right living, does Jesus include this one line about divorce, adultery, and remarriage? And as I did some research on this, I looked at first century Jewish thought on this, reading from a rabbi's perspective, why why did Luke include this in? And the thing is, there in Judaism, among the wealthy, there are people quietly putting away the ban of divorce. And just like our society, Um, there were people within Judaism that would look in life and go, well, um, I don't want to be married to this person anymore. I don't want to be married to this woman anymore. Um, She seems younger. She seems more interesting. So I'm going to lay aside this law and I'm going to divorce her and I'm going to remarry her. And that's exactly what Luke is revealing as Jesus is confronting this. And if we think big picture, another theme that I have been aware of in Luke is that Jesus is, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, shows uh, clear, demonstrated compassion and interest in people that have been outcast and on the margins of society, including women. That women have a high place in the Gospel of Luke. And so Jesus is confronting this cultural idolatry of convenient divorce by way of adultery. And he's speaking into that. But I think it'd be more helpful just to remind ourselves of additional teachings that Jesus talks about with divorce and remarriage. Uh, It says in Matthew chapter 5 that, If anyone divorces his wife, he must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In in Matthew 19, it says, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, these Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus again. The Pharisees are trying to trick him into saying something that would not be true. Jesus is not tricked. He's wise to the scenario. Jesus says, well, the Pharisees are saying, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife's certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Jesus goes on in Matthew to talk about unfaithfulness. And and as I've read passages about this, this is my best response in this setting to that. If you have questions about divorce, adultery, and remarriage, it's probably not best to talk about those in a sermon, but over a cup of coffee. Because how we apply this is very, very important as we look at that. And if anyone is on the receiving end of adultery, or if anyone is on the committing end of adultery, both are going to require a loving biblical response. And so as we wrestle through this together and as we understand we live in a broken society, the reason this is included in this passage right now is because there were people that were trying to put away some of the law. They were trying to put away some of the law to, ha- to handle their own conveniences. So I just want to, to land that thought for you this morning. No one wins in divorce. And Jesus cares about those who are in the middle of it. And in other stories within the gospels, we see his compassion for those that are guilty of the crime. We see his compassion for those who have received the pain and heartache of the crime. And again, here we go. God's mercy and his forgiveness is available to us all. And repentance is our option today. And I can tell you firsthand as I have walked with people so close to me that this is a painful, horrible endeavor. No one wins. That adultery comes at a high, high cost to all that are involved. And we have to remember joyfully, our shepherd puts us on the shoulders and carries us home. If you're guilty this morning, there is a joyful shepherd who says, come on home. If you have received the evil and injustice of it, there is a joyful shepherd who knows how to lead you home. To comfort, and there is hope for all. It doesn't make it right, it doesn't make it fair, it doesn't explain away the heartache and the pain, but God is good and faithful to people who are broken and hurting. And the best way to care for people in this situation is to actually care and to walk alongside them. So I just want to offer that. If anyone is in the middle of that, I know and understand the pain of that, and I would be more than happy. To shepherd you through that. The rich man and Lazarus, Alistair Begg says this, the condemnation of the rich man was not that he was wealthy, but that wealth was all that he had. Wealth was his soul's ultimate treasure. So as we think about this passage, um, there's a couple ways that we can do it. At the end of Luke 16... Uh, Jesus says this, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. He was speaking to the hardness of their hearts. He was speaking to the reality as look, if they're not gonna listen to the prophetic words of Moses, if they're not gonna listen to the prophets, then a resurrected savior is not gonna make a difference in their lives too. He's, he's again identifying with the hardened hearts of people. He's drawing the line, if you will, between those who who will hear and respond to Jesus and those whose eyes and hearts are closed that will not respond to Jesus. And so I want us this morning, what do we do with this passage? I want us to hear the words of Moses. And I want you to answer yourself, what what do I do about this? Hear the words of Moses. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the words of Moses. I just want to ask you this morning, have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might? And have you loved your neighbor as yourself? Maybe. But in the times that you have not loved the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, and in the times you have not loved your neighbor as yourself, who can take away your shortcoming? And who can turn you around? And who is the one that truly does love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Who has truly loved their neighbor as themselves? Jesus. So as you hear the words of Moses, just know this. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. He did not lay one dot of it aside. He is your strength for fulfilling the law. Let's listen to the words of the prophet Jeremiah, thus says the Lord: Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practice steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight," says the Lord. Jeremiah nine twenty-three twenty four. Let that be our thing, that we glory in him, that we understand him, that we practice love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For these are the things that the Lord delights in. What if you've been practicing other things? Then this is your great moment to go, I'm going to repent of the things that I have been doing, and I'm going to reframe my life on a path that delights the Lord. But let me ask you this who has ultimately satisfied God's wrath against sin, Jesus. So when we read in Zephaniah that he rejoices over us with singing, how can that be true? Because Jesus stands in your stead and Jesus pleased God for you. That is why the shepherd can joyfully go after the one and put the wayward sheep on its shoulders because Christ has satisfied the wrath of God forever. And that is unbelievable good news. And you have an invitation today to fix your eyes on the good shepherd who goes after the wayward. Let's also listen to the words of the apostles. This is written in first Timothy chapter six. It says, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich Fall into temptation. Let me say that again. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare and into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. If you desire to be rich, just know it can plunge you into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. And pierce their hearts with many pangs, Timothy goes on, or Paul goes on to Timothy and says this later in chapter six. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The rich they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and ready to share the storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that, which is truly life. If you have wealth, take hold of that which is truly life. The truth is most of us have some degree of wealth by worldly standards. In terms of global economics, most of us have wealth. And we are therefore to be generous and ready to share. We are therefore to store up treasures as a good foundation for the future. And we are to see that God is the one who gives us these things. In 20 years, I've known some wonderfully generous, wealthy believers who have leveraged their life and their ability to generate revenue and income and steward it with great wisdom and humility. And some of them are among the most understated, non-braggadocious people that literally help finance the kingdom. And if that's you, if you've been given the ability and the capacity to generate wealth and to lead in commerce, do that. And do that to the glory of God so that you may leverage your life and steward your resources with great joy as you see the kingdom unfold. But if you're struggling with greed, if it's hard for you to give, if it's scary for you to give, if there's an unwillingness in your heart to give, you just need to know that's likely called an idol. Tim Keller in his book, counterfeit God, counterfeit God says, money, sex and power are great counterfeit gods and all of them can lead us astray. This morning, I wanna, I wanna end with one more uh, rich person and that was the one in whom Jesus, the tomb in whom Jesus was buried. It was a rich man's tomb that Jesus was buried in temporarily but it was a rich man's tomb. And true to his word, that's exactly where he was buried. And three days later, he rose again. Two years ago, I was in Jerusalem and I was standing in one of the two possible locations where that happened. And I can tell you the whole thing is a mystery of mercy. And I don't know where this lands on you today, whether you're struggling with money and greed, if you're struggling in a broken, failed or failing marriage, or if you really have not responded to the here and now of Jesus. But I can just tell you with certainty that he loves you, that he's given his life for you, that he knows you. And if you are struggling with idolatry, the best thing to do is to say, I'm struggling with idolatry and I need you to take this from me and I'm giving it to you. And I need your grace and your strength to restore me and put it on the right path. If you are in a failing or failed marriage, there is good godly counsel and love that is available for you within this church family. We would be honored to walk with you in a way that is loving and comprehensive and biblical and with a process and path that will honor and glorify God and honor you. That's available to anyone who is struggling today. Just let me know and we will get you in touch with the right people and resources. finally, if you've not responded to the here and now of Jesus, if you've been watching from the periphery and going, well, I like parts of Jesus, I'm not sure about all of Jesus, I just want you to know today is a great day for you to place your faith in Jesus. You are guilty of sin apart from him. You stand condemned apart from him. And that good shepherd looks for the one and is ready to joyfully bring them home. And just like we began last week, there is much rejoicing, much rejoicing when someone repents and places their faith in Jesus. Let me pray with you this morning. Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about Grace Auburn Church online at graceauburn.church.